All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. And let's start things off with what is happening on the ground. Uh, more Russian uh, Wagnerite advances in Bakhmut. Um, some, some reports are that uh, the Russians have taken this Azom uh, factory. There are other reports saying that they haven't taken it just yet. So, I mean... Either way, it looks like the Russians, if they don't have the entire uh, factory, they will they will have it under their control soon. Uh, just a bad situation in Bakhmut, a bad situation for Ukraine, for the Ukraine military in Bakhmut, for the Ukraine military in Avdiivka. And um, Elensky has announced that he will send his best forces to Bakhmut. The order is to fight for that uh, that area. Well, at the same time, he gave an interview to a Japanese publication saying that they can't have the counteroffensive until he gets more weapons, tanks, fighter jets, a little bit of conflicting uh, announcements from uh, from Alensky. And uh, we can then talk about the, the situation, maybe the economic situation, uh, once again in Ukraine, because I think the Hryvna is is inching up. I think it was 50 hryvna now to the dollar. And a lot of that has to do with the IMF uh, um, loan that they approved. And it looks like the economic situation is going to get really bad for the average Ukrainian. And a lot of inflation is on the way. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about what's happening on the ground first. Right. Let, let's talk about that. Now, of course, obviously, lots of fog of war situation. Now, yesterday, last night, Lots of reports, including reports from pretty reliable sources, if I can put it like that, that the Azon plant, this is a gigantic factory in uh, uh, Bakhmut. It actually takes up quite a large area of what you might call the town of Bakhmut itself. This gigantic factory uh, had been captured by the Russians. And there was video uh, footage which showed Russian Troops. I should always make it clear, these are Wagner organization troops. By the way, I call it the Wagner organization. I don't like this Wagner private military company because I don't think it's private at all. And I don't think it's a company. But, you know, never mind. Let's not get distracted by that. So interviews of their troops in the Azom plant. Uh, they look pretty relaxed. There was no audible sound of fighting. I think that what's happened is that the Azon plant, which is huge, there's, the footage shows what it looks like. It's an incredible ramshackle, broken down, old plant, clearly dating back from long back into the Soviet Union. It doesn't look as if it's been updated or revised in any significant way. And it's been heavily knocked about by the fighting. Anyway, I've no doubt, I, well, I, I think that the Wagner forces control it. What I think the confusion is, is that there's apparently some industrial buildings just outside of it, south of it, called apparently Azom 2, which are a distinct enterprise, perhaps connected with the Azom plant in some way. But anyway, overall, I think that the Russians either control the whole of this plant and it's, as a, it's an enormous, sprawling, run-down place, or 
If not, as I said, there's still one or two buildings left. They will control it very soon. More interesting, there was also a report yesterday, and again early this morning, that another important location in Brahmad, the avant-garde stadium, which I'm assuming is the big football uh, sports stadium, has also been captured by the Russians. And it does seem to me that if this is true, then we're looking at the loss by Ukraine of these two big fortified places. So that's the situation, as far as I can tell, within Bakhmut itself. And there's lots of reports of intense fighting going on around Bakhmut. Now, let's come back to what Zelensky was saying. And we've also had comments from his commander, uh, 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 his top commander in the area, who's General Sirsky, who is the overall commander of the ground forces. Well, if we start with General Sirsky, he said that Bakhmut must be held to the last man, basically. It wasn't quite that, but that's essentially what he was saying. Now, he spoke in a way that sounded to me as if the Ukrainians are now heavily on the defensive again. In other words, it's beginning to seem to me as if this idea of a Ukrainian counterattack in and around Bakhmut has faded. Maybe because the Russians have made more progress in Bakhmut itself, maybe because more Russian troops are concentrating in the area, maybe because of the heavy level of artillery fire that's going on. But I'm going to suggest something else. Uh, last week, Zelensky himself did a tour of the battlefronts. He visited Chasov Yar, which is this village, small town, close, just close to Bakhmut. It's about five or six miles away from where Bakhmut itself is. And then he also went to Kherson region. And then he went back to Kiev, and then he gave an interview, this interview that you mentioned, with his Japanese newspaper. And he was extremely pessimistic. He was saying that Ukraine lacks ammunition, it's run out of ammunition, it doesn't have enough equipment, it's in no condition to launch an attack, an offensive in the East at the moment. It needs much more equipment than it has had. And it did come across as pessimistic. So what I suspect has happened, this is a guess, because of course I don't know, is that Zelensky went to the bat battlefields, met the frontline commanders. They told him in no uncertain terms that an offensive at this present time would be a bad idea. He went back shaken to Kiev and he gave this interview to this Japanese newspaper. That seems to me the most plausible explanation of all of this. But even as he does that, he's not prepared to give up Bakhmut. And that's why we get these additional reports that more troops are being sent there. Special forces now apparently are being sent into Bakhmut itself to continue the resistance in Bakhmut. I mean, they're fighting like the entire future of Ukraine. I'm going to say this straightforwardly. Depends on this battle of Bakhmut, which is really very remarkable given the other things that we've heard. And I'm going to say something else. I, I think that what Zelensky says to a Japanese newspaper after he comes back from the battlefronts cannot be assumed 
to be what he will do in the long term. Because even as the situation in eastern Ukraine is clearly very grim, even as his battlefield commanders are probably telling him that an offensive anywhere on the battlefronts at this time is an extremely bad idea, one gets the sense that the political pressure on him from the West and from some hardliners within his own government is increasing all the time and they want this offensive launched. So he's caught, if you like, between a rock and a hard place and he's an unstable individual himself at the best of times. He's one of these people who, for whatever reason, tends to swing from moods of extreme optimism to extreme pessimism. I've noticed this before with him. And as I said, he's been to the battlefields. He's been told things are really bad. He gives this grim perspective to a Japanese newspaper. And tomorrow, for whatever reason, whether you know it's because he's taking things, whether he, because he's been talking to other people, we will see a completely different Zelensky, full of optimism, full of buoyancy. We're going to retake all these places. We're going to fight to the last man in Bakhmut, obviously, but we're going to recapture all the lost ground and we're going to impose regime change upon Russia. So you mustn't place too much reliance on what Zelensky says. Um, I mean, I think that's an obvious fact um, about the war. I think anybody who follows it closely knows this. But nonetheless... In its own way, the Japanese newspaper article was interesting because it does give us some insight, perhaps, into the real situation on the battlefronts and what the generals, the commanders are telling him. Yeah, I, I know why he has those mood swings. I think we all know why he has I think those we mood all swings. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, yeah. he's, he's fighting two, uh, two wars. Not, yeah. not only Alensky, but the collective West, they're fighting two wars. They're fighting the actual war, and they're also fighting the, the media war, and the media war is much more important. And uh, and when it comes to Bakhmut, um, Alensky, he's, he's tethered himself to Bakhmut. He did it in December when he went to, to Congress and he handed over the flag signed by the, the fighters in Bakhmut to Pelosi and Kamala Harris. He said that Bakhmut is going to change the trajectory of the war, it's going to be the the victory for you. I mean, he was he was hinting at the fact that this that this stand in Bakhmut was going to be the 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 the, the stand, the victory that's going to to lead to Ukraine's overall victory against Russia. I mean, it, he built up the, the script writers for him. They built up Bakhmut to be the the big uh, turning point of the conflict in Ukraine, and 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 he's trapped now. He's trapped. The collective West is trapped. They want an offensive in the spring. They want him to hold on to Bakhmut. I mean, I'm sure there are forces in the Pentagon that say ditch it, but I'm sure there are other forces that are telling him, probably the State Department, that are telling him, do not lose Bakhmut. Because there has been this huge media narrative around Bakhmut. And finally, Alexander, the the media narrative to try and and paint Bakhmut as an, as an insignificant city, failed. They did that for a couple of weeks with statements saying, Bakhmut is not important, Bakhmut is not, don't worry about it, it's not going, it doesn't mean anything. That didn't work. 
that media campaign failed and everyone saw right through it. And everyone said, what are you talking about? I can see a map. I understand where all the roads are going and the and the railroads and the supply lines. What are you saying? This is not a significant city. So, I mean, they tried some tricks to to maybe find a way to 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 give Elensky a type of type of exit out of this media trap with Bakhmut. It didn't work. He's they are trapped in this in this prison of their own making. They made this prison with all their scripts and media narratives and flags to Pelosi. They did this to themselves. And now the that's Russians, ex- they have them. That's exactly right. That's exactly what's happened. Can I just say, there's been a fascinating article on a- in Asia Times by someone who participated on a discussion in Britain, uh, in Britain about Ukraine, held under Chatham House rules, which is to say it was a semi-open but semi-closed discussion. I don't think we have in Britain. And apparently lots of US officials were there, including people of cabinet rank, interesting, uh, you know, ex-officials. But they were collectively furious. <laughs> that, that, that's the impression you get from this, that they, they feel, they realise they've been manoeuvred into a trap. They also realise that they can't sustain this war indefinitely, they can't keep it up indefinitely, that they're losing the war of supply, that the Russians are around. <laughs> producing them in weapons and tanks and shells and all those things. Putin gave an interview about this. And, at the, and you know, Ukraine's lost its best soldiers. But at the same time, they can't just walk away and accept the debacle that is looming over the horizon. So they're furious and there are all kinds of crazy plans apparently floating around. Send a thousand Abrams tanks to Ukraine. A thousand send, uh, you know, a, the create a foreign legion of hundreds of thousands of men to fight in Ukraine. Apparently, hardly anybody was prepared to walk away from this because, as you correctly said, they created the narrative. They created the narrative around Bakhmut. And by the way, there may be some people in the U.S. in the U.S. military who say, "Pull out of Bakhmut." But my impression in Britain, and you know, Britain has influence in Kiev is that the British have always wanted Ukraine to hold on to Bakhmut. Not, again, necessarily because, you know, they um, feel that it's... I don't know what they think about its strategic importance, but because, again, it's the PR thing, the PR effect of losing Bakhmut after all this you know, effort to keep it is would be too damaging. So the result is they're trapped in this Bakhmut story you know you have these different ideas being thrown around about how ukraine should fight you see the political pressure as you absolutely rightly say to gain ground by the way i got the same impression at the time of the herson offensive um my impression was that the military in ukraine were not keen on it they thought it was a bad idea they thought that capturing herson itself would be extremely costly that Ukraine would lose thousands of men to do it. They were doubtful about its strategic value. And the Ukrainian military, they couldn't anger the United States. So they went on doing it, went on losing men, went on losing machines. They battled their way through to Kherson. Dynamic is now reproducing itself. Launch an offensive in the southeast, 
battle through Russian fortifications, find some way of clinging on there. Well, let's talk about the realities of the economy. What's, uh, what's happening in uh, the economy in Ukraine? Because this is another part of the war, because once the economy really starts to crumble. Well, I mean, I, absolutely. I mean, it might be the, you know, the, the one that ends the regime, if I we have to say this. So let's, what's happened? We've had the war going on. We've had Russian strikes against Ukraine's industrial base, which, you know, the big factories are no longer operating. To all is admitting a 33% contraction in GDP. Some analysts put it higher than that. The harvest yesterday was less, significantly less than it had been the, last, the year before. It looks like this year it's going to be less than it was last year. The Russians are edging towards ending the grain deal because as far as they're concerned, the Western powers have never really a source of foreign exchange. What's held things together into Ukraine from the West, from the United States, from Europe? It's backed by euros and dollars. I mean, I'm simplifying, but that's essentially what's happened. Now, over the last couple of weeks, it's beginning to look as if this policy has run its course, that it's no longer sustainable anymore. And I suspect there's multiple reasons for this. Firstly, we have the financial crisis in the West, banking crisis in Europe. Governments are running deficits. Things are not looking terribly good. There's less appetite, perhaps, to go on sending money to Ukraine from countries like Germany. And of course, if there's a financial crisis in Germany and Europe, then, I mean, that's probably no longer be, going to be possible. But beyond that, I think there's also worries, or rather, you know, concerns that this isn't going to be sustainable in the United States. The Republicans now control the House. They seem to be moving increasingly towards cutting back. It's increasingly looking as if the money flow into Ukraine is going to start to slow down, perhaps even stop. And the policy that's been followed up to now of printing money to cover all the costs and holding up the value of the grivna by, you know, backing it with all your dollar holdings. Or, you know, being prepared to buy it with dollars and euros if it falls. That that's now run its course. So what has happened is that they've had to turn to the IMF. The IMF, as we discussed, it's broken its own rules. It's given Ukraine a $15 billion loan. The Ukrainian Central Bank has given away, given us information about what one of those conditions are, which is that the printing of grievances must end. Ukraine must start cutting back on money emission. The only way Ukraine can do that is by cutting costs. Cutting costs means cutting salaries, cutting expenses, cutting back on spending. Cutting back on spending in wartime is, to put it mildly, extremely difficult, especially for a country like Ukraine. Your tax base must have collapsed. Your industrial base, your big industrial base, is largely gone.
I wonder how sustainable in practical terms that is. So it's looking again as if this year of pumping money into Ukraine that we've seen um, has just bought a small amount of time and Ukraine might be facing if this if these if this the sticks with the West, if the Republicans really do their job in Congress, if the Europeans really do lose their the, you know their enthusiasm for all of this, it, it looks as if instead of solving the problem, ultimately it might even have made it worse because it, it would have postponed the outcome, but the consequences of postponing the outcome, postponing the economic crisis will have been just to make that crisis worse. Yeah, that's why they need this this miracle spring counteroffensive. It's it's like the, the Czech, uh, Czech Republic president said, this is their last chance. And when you look at the economic situation, I think you understand that it's their last chance. But one final question, what happens when the the uh, the Ukraine government does cut uh, cut costs, cut uh, salaries, while at the same time you you get into an inflation cycle for the average Ukrainian citizen? Yes, I mean I think the what happens then? Yeah, very difficult to say. I mean I think the first thing that will happen is that they will try to tighten up even further on political controls. I mean we could start to see you know, <laughs> repression forces, you know, intensify. Um, the problem with that is that, of course, if, there's a high, if there is an inflation crisis, then it's not just um, the civilian population that starts to see its incomes erode. It's the military, but it's also the police agencies. And they might start to lose confidence, at which point the, the government is thrown back Basically, I suspect on relying on these far right militia groups, which are, you know, totally backed into a corner. I mean, they've got nowhere to retreat to. And that could turn extremely ugly. And they might even start insisting on an even further radicalization of the government, perhaps a radicalization beyond the point where even the population will find it impossible to accept. Who knows? So, you know, I don't want to go too far. But it, it, a hyperinflationary crisis, if it hits, or even an inflationary crisis, if it hits, could very easily undermine both the faith of the population, but also the ability to sustain the war. I mean, there have been many examples of this. This is what happened. one of the reasons why the South collapsed in the... American Civil War. There were obviously there were military defeats, there was attrition on the war, but there was also a growing inflationary crisis within the southern states, which sapped morale and, and created a pervasive sense of failure. You can't maintain normality, or at least the appearance of some kind of normality. People begin to lose confidence. Yeah. All right, we will uh, end it there. The Durant.locals.com. We are on. Rockfin and Rumble, Odyssey BitChute and Telegram and go to the Durant shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.